If you have your Bibles, we're gonna, we are going to continue our verse by verse study through the book of James. We are in James chapter 3, and we're going to be looking at the first 12 verses there in James chapter 3. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand, and uh, we'll go on right to your seat so you can follow along with us. James chapter 3, first 12 verses this morning. James writes, starting in verse 1, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths, that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look also at the ships, although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a force a little fire kindles? And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature and is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, a reptile and creature of the sea, is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives, or a grapevine bear figs? Thus no spring yields both salt, water, and fresh The title of my message this morning is The Power of the Tongue. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time that we can spend in your word this morning. Thank you for your word. Because as we study it, we recognize that it has the power to change our lives. Holy Spirit, thank you for giving us, Lord, information. Not only information, but application. Lord, on how to apply these truths to our lives. God, you're so good to us. Lord, help us to to be open to hear what you have to say to your church this morning. And finally, Lord, we do pray if there's anyone who's joined us that is yet to surrender their heart and life to you. They're not born again this morning. Would you especially speak to them, Lord, that they may come to know you as so many of us do today. Thank you for our time together, we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as we've been looking at the book of James, and specifically, we looked last week at the subject of faith without works being dead and the importance of our faith being lived out by our works. For too many of us, I think that spotlight of the Holy Spirit has been shining really bright in our eyes. And if you're like me, you're, you're probably at this point wanting to look at some other passage of Scripture than the book of James. But listen, the beauty of expositional teaching is that we don't get to pick and choose what we want the Holy Spirit to show us. He does. And times like this morning, as we're going verse by verse through a very practical and yet pointed book like James, the Holy Spirit is going to show us some things that perhaps we really don't want to hear. But the Holy Spirit knows that we need to hear them. You may say, Pastor Tom, let's change the subject. Let's talk about something else. Let's talk about 1 Corinthians 13, about how God is love. And that would be a great study. Why don't you do that today? You know, it's kind of like my kids when they were young. They would be 
disobedient. And they knew that they were going to be disciplined. And we were driving home from my in-law's house, and it was about a 45-minute drive. And, and they would either pretend that they were asleep, so when we got home they wouldn't get a spanking, or they would try and talk to change the subject so that I would forget about it. Daddy, how did all the animals get on the ark? Daddy, well, what did Jesus look like? And they thought, if they changed the subject, I would forget. I didn't forget. Don't forget. But I think it's the same type of thing this morning. What we're looking at today is it's so personal and so applicable, and it's going to make us feel a little bit uncomfortable, me included, because it deals with the issue of the tongue, a very powerful member of our body. Obviously, when we say tongue, we're talking about our words and how we use them. But I have to tell you, James is going to get right to the point in making us think, really think about what we say, the words that come out of our mouths. We might want to change the subject. <laughs> Halfway through, you're going to say, hey, how about those chiefs, Pastor Tom? Hey, go chief. No. We need to be open to what the Holy Spirit has to say to us. Now, with that, there's one point that we need to take from the study that we are looking at. And I hope it's this. To reach the goal that God has as a Christian, that we must learn to control our tongue. Now, with that said, it's amazing how much God's Word has to say about the tongue. You know, many people refer to the book of James as the Proverbs of the New Testament. And when you think about the book of Proverbs, it really does have a whole lot to say about the way we use our words. Let me give you about four verses you can jot down. We looked at some of these a few weeks back. Proverbs 10:19. In the multitude of words, sin is not lacking, but he who restrains his lips is wise. Proverbs 12:22. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who deal truthfully are his delight. Proverbs 13, 3, He who guards his mouth preserves his life, but he who opens wide his lips shall have destruction. And Proverbs 15, 1, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. So perhaps James is drawing uh, a lot of his wisdom from the book of Proverbs, but, but again, no, this is something we all need to hear. So with that, if you're taking notes, we're going to look at three things when it comes to the power of the tongue. The power of the tongue has, number one, power to direct. Number two, power to destroy. And number three, power to delight. First look at verse one, James says, power to direct. He says, my brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. Now, apparently, everybody here in this early church that got together, they wanted to teach, they wanted to be a spiritual leader. So James had to warn them, hey, check your heart. Make sure you're called knowing that a teacher of God's word is going to receive a stricter judgment. Now, Jewish teachers, they were called a rabbi, which meant, meant they were a master. They say, you're a master, teacher. The Hebrew culture, the community respected its teachers. They lifted them up and called them, like I said, master. In fact, under Jewish law, the duty to provide for a rabbi surpassed even the duty to provide for your own parents. Needless to say, with such privileges, the Jews had no shortage of people desiring to be teachers. People oblivious to the responsibility side as a cushy job. And since the early church maintained the same respect for the teachers as did the Jews, the church then became also vulnerable to the same problems. Teachers you know, wanting to be raised up with the wrong motives. And sadly, there are many pastors today who are only in it for what they can get, not because they're called by God, but because they're looking for an easy job. They say, oh, I wish I was a pastor. All you do is work just one day a week. 
Really? <laughs> so James gives a, a warning here that if you're going to speak for God, and if you're going to have that kind of power in your words that directs a person's life, you better make sure you're called by God, and for sure, you better make sure that what you're teaching is the Word of God. I shudder to think some of these pastors today that are only in it to fleece the flock of God. I think of the stricter judgment that's going to come on some of these guys, especially a guy like Joel Olstein. I mean, this guy, he has the power in his words to direct a church, the largest church in America, averaging 45,000 attendees a week. He has the power to, to encourage them to turn from their sin, turn to faith in Jesus Christ. But instead, he spreads false teachings week after week after week. Breaks my heart. I pray for the man. He's got to stand before God one day. And as James says, they will receive a stricter judgment. Again, it's because the teacher wields incredible influence. The pastor passes out the bread of life. He traffics in spiritual eternal truths. That's a huge responsibility. A pastor's worst sin is to misrepresent God and God's word. So James says to these would-be teachers, to count the cost, God holds you to a higher standard. I mean, as a pastor, you can't say, well, listen to what I say, but don't do what I do. That's a hypocrite. That's not a teacher. Teacher gets no credit for teaching the Bible if he doesn't live what he teaches. Now, that doesn't mean he's perfect. And that's what James says. Look at verse 2. James says, for we all stumble at many things. Listen, one time or another, we all stumble with the things that we say. No, we, we can't take them back. You might be surprised to know that even some of the greatest people that God ever used had a problem with their tongues. Take Job, for example. God called himself, uh, God himself called Job blameless and upright, but Job had trouble controlling his tongue. We know this because the final chapter of the book of Job, it says in Job 40, verse 4, Job says, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. I'm done. I can't talk. Take Isaiah, for example. Isaiah certainly was one of God's choice servants. But isn't it interesting? When he came into the presence of God, as recorded in Isaiah chapter 6, he writes, I saw the Lord sitting upon his throne. He was high and lifted up, and his glory filled the temple. And the angels cried, Holy. And then Isaiah says, Woe is me, I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. As soon as he stands in the presence of God, first thing he became aware of was how he misused his words. The words that came out of his mouth. How wrong they were. I'm undone, I'm a man of unclean lips. Without question, Moses was one of the greatest men that God ever used. But he had trouble with his tongue. Psalm 106, verse 33 it's written of him, it says, and rash words came from Moses' lips. So even Moses struggled with it. Then we move to the New Testament. The most blessed speaker of the Christian church, the great apostle Paul. He had trouble with his tongue. Acts chapter 23. Paul stood there before uh, the high priest Ananias proclaiming the gospel. Ananias didn't like what he heard, what he was saying. So he commanded that Paul would be smacked in the face. And they hit him. And then Paul quickly responds, God will smite you, you whitewashed wall. You know, I'm glad that's in the Bible. I'm not sure how you interpret it, but I interpreted that Paul was getting a little irritated. Maybe losing his temper just a little bit. 
You're saying that Paul lost his temper? Well, I'm implying that. Uh, yeah, I'm implying that, that, that the, the Apostle Paul sinned, just like we all sin. You know, and that might have been one of those instances, but maybe it wasn't, but whatever. It gives me hope because I know we all have problems like that. If someone strikes you, you want to strike them back. Someone says something uh, harsh to you, you want to respond harsher than that. You want to retaliate. You want to defend yourself. It's human nature. Now, I don't say that to defend our actions and to say it's okay, but rather to remind us that even God's greatest had struggles in this area. So James says in verse 2 that, for we all stumble in many things. But then he goes on to say, if anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. So because the tongue has the power to direct a person's life, a man or woman who can control their tongue can control other areas uh, in their life when, when it looks like circumstances are getting out of control. Now, in order to prove that point, James, as he does so well, gives us some very clear, practical illustrations, examples. Look at verse 3. He says, Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us and we turn their whole body. Now, those of you that, that are horse people, you know how awesomely amazing and powerful those animals are. Some horses, you can take 400 pounds and put them on them and, and uh, you know, the same amount of weight that a weightlifter you know, stra- you know, just strangely tries to lift over his head. But put, put that same 400 pounds on a horse and it's like, no big deal. Yeah, I'll, I'll carry it around, not a big deal. They don't even breathe heavy. That same horse, unburdened, can sprint a quarter mile in about 25 seconds. I mean, just that, 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 that uh, half a ton of raw power. Yet you put a bridle in its mouth and a 100-pound woman on its back who knows what she's doing, literally she can make that, that horse dance. James also observed the same phenomena in ancient ships. Verse 4, he says, Look also at ships. Although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Ships, small and large, are all controlled by one rudder. Whether it be a little ski boat or the USS Zumwalt, the United States' largest, most technically advanced combat warship, really largest in the world, he who controls the rudder controls the ship. So it is with the mighty tongue. That movable muscular structure attached to the floor of your mouth. That's what Webster's defines it as. That's why it's so important that we bring our speech under the control of the Holy Spirit. Because the tongue controlled by Jesus Christ can be a great blessing. But left uncontrolled, it can do so much damage. You know, during World War II, the, the danger of the enemy finding out our plans, there was a danger of the enemy finding out uh, uh, our plans, the enemy finding out our plans. So the people were, were accustomed to seeing the poster that said, loose lips sink ships. But let me say this, loose lips also ruin lives. A person that makes an unguarded statement can suddenly find himself involved in a fight. His tongue has forced the rest of his body to defend itself. So James wants to uh, demonstrate to us just how clearly the destructive power of the tongue can be. And this brings us to point number two. The, the tongue has a power to destroy. Look at verse 5. Even so the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a force a little fire kindles. You know, many of us have read year after year the terrible fires that happened in California, uh, all over, you know, really the world, but, but mainly you hear a lot of it in California. There was one just recently near my mother-in-law's uh, home where it's, in just 10 days, 
There are 28,307 acres burned. It caused two deaths and destroyed 17 structures. James is saying, even though you think your words really don't matter, there's so much damage that can be caused from them. Maybe you heard of this. This The the story is called The Great Wall of China Hoax. Back in the early 1900s, four newspaper reporters from Denver, uh, Colorado, didn't set out to tear down the Great Wall of China, but they almost succeeded, literally. The four men by chance at the um, Saturday night in a Denver railway station, these four men all represented four different newspapers in the Denver area, the Post, the Times, the Republican, and the Rocky Mountain News. Uh, Each had been sent by its respective newspaper to dig up a story, any story, so they could put in the headlines of the Sunday morning paper. So the reporters went to the railroad station hoping to catch a visiting celebrity. If one would happen by train there, they thought maybe this might be one where they show up, but, but no one showed up train or otherwise. So the later the night got, the reporters began to console one another, kind of have compassion for one another because for them, no news was bad news. They're all facing returning to their editors without a story. One said that he, that he said, I think I'm going to make up a story and hand it in. Well, the other three laughed. Someone suggested that they all walk over to the Oxford Hotel and have a beer. So that's what they did. Well, while they were there, another reporter said, hey, he liked the first guy's idea about faking a story and suggested that each one of them should fake a story to get off the hook. Well, the third guy says, you guys, are, you're thinking too small. Four half-baked fakes didn't cut it. What they needed was one real big whopper of a story that they all could use. So they ordered another round of beers. As they talked, they realized that the phony, a phony domestic story would be too easy to fact check. So they began discussing some sort of a, a foreign story they could print that would be really difficult to verify. They thought China. China's far away, so they all agreed they would write about China. Then one of them leaned forward and said, try this one on Forsyth. He says, well, write this. There's a group of American engineers stopping over in Denver en route to China because the Chinese government is making plans to demolish the Great Wall of China and our engineers are going to be bidding on the job. Well, one reporter was skeptical. Why would the Chinese want to destroy the Great Wall of China? I thought for a moment and said, well, they're tearing down the ancient boundaries to symbolize international goodwill to welcome foreign trade. How's that sound? Good, great. Another round of beers. By 11 o'clock, the four reporters had worked out all the details of this ridiculous story. After leaving the Oxford bar, they would go over to the Windsor Hotel. They would sign in with four fictitious names to the hotel register. They would instruct the desk clerk to tell anyone who asked that these four New Yorkers had arrived that evening and had been interviewed by reporters and left early the next morning for China. All four Denver newspapers carried the story, all of them. Front page of the Denver newspaper, Chinese, a great Chinese wall doomed, Peking seeks world trade. Of course it was phony. Ludicrous fabrication concocted by four newsmen in a hotel bar. See, the problem with fake news goes all the way back then. But as the story goes, their story was taken seriously. It was picked up and expanded by newspapers in the eastern United States and then newspapers abroad. When the Chinese learned that the Americans were sending a demolition crew to tear down their national monument, they were enraged, as expected. Particularly angered were the members of a secret society, this, this uh, violent group of Chinese patriots. They, they, inspired by the story, exploded. They went on a rampage against the foreign embassies in Peking, slaughtered hundreds of missionaries, 
In two months, 12,000 troops from six countries joined forces and invaded China with the purpose of protecting their, their own countrymen. The bloodshed that followed, sparked by the journalistic hoax invented in a barroom in Denver, became an international red-hot bonfire known to every high school history student today as the Boxer Rebellion. The tongue is indeed mightier than generals and their armies. It can fuel our lives so they become fiery furnaces, or it can cool our lives with the soothing wind of the Spirit. It can be forged by hell, or it can be the tool of heaven. That's what James says. Look at verse 6. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature and is set on fire by hell. That word course there is an interesting word. It means a, a will. You, you may have seen it. A good example of this is, you know, at 4th of July time, you buy those fireworks and they have this little spinner firework. You know, you light it, it goes, you know, and then the, the flames are bursting out the sides and it's bouncing all over the place. That's what he's saying here. That's the picture. The tongue is at the center of life. So when the tongue is set on fire, it starts spinning out of control, just exploding and, and destroying. The late Spiro Zodihadis, Greek-American Bible scholar, commenting on this passage, wrote this. Hell is a rubbish heap of the universe. James is most careful in the presenting of symbolic figures. He tells us that the evil tongue defiles the whole body. When the whole body is defiled, what good is it but to be thrown in the wretched heap and burned? All evil talk has its beginnings in hell and will cause the whole body, the whole personality, to burn in hell. Then he went on to say this. These are serious words. The fire we start with our tongues has been barred from hell and it's going to lead us and others there. So just in case you still don't get the full picture, James has one more final illustration, that of the animal and the animal, animal tamer. Look at verses 7 and 8. For every kind of beast and bird, a reptile, or creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Many don't know this, but Winston Churchill and Lady Astor were very untamed with their words to each other. The story goes that there was none better at insults than Winston Churchill, who had no love affair with Lady Astor. Actually, the feeling was mutual. On one occasion, she found the great statesman rather obviously intoxicated in a hotel elevator. With cutting disgust, she sniped, Sir Winston, you are drunk. To which he replied, Milady, you are ugly, but tomorrow I'll be sober. That might be a classic example of how to not handle an insult. On another occasion, Winston Churchill and Lady Astor engaged in verbal sparring once again when she told him, if I were your wife, I'd put arsenic in your tea. He responded, if I were your husband, I would drink it. James says, we can tame lions. You know, you've seen the lion tamers. We've watched them in the circus. Birds can be trained to talk, to say phrases. Even serpents can be trained. You know, you go to India and the guy playing the flute and the cobra comes up and does his thing. And of course, you go to SeaWorld and you can see the trained fish. Man has learned to train and to bring under control all of these wild things in nature, yet the one thing man hasn't been able to tame is its own tongue. James says it's an unruly evil full of deadly poison. 
In this final indictment of the tongue, the picture is that of a poisonous snake whose tongue is never at rest, whose fangs are filled with that, that lethal venom. And you can picture that snake with that tongue going in and out. James says man's tongue is unstable, elusive, restless, full of poison. And I have to say the deadliest of poisons is that of gossip. A gossipy, uncontrolled tongue is like a fire out of control. It may start small, maybe in a church, but it quickly spreads with the ability to destroy a whole congregation. I read a story about three pastors who went to a pastor's conference and they were all sharing a room. During the conversation, one pastor said, our people come to us and pour out their hearts to us, confessing sins and needs. Confession is good for the soul. Let's do the same. Well, the first pastor said, well, let me start by confessing my secret sin. I, I just love to gamble. When I go out of town, I, I find the nearest casino and cha-ching, cha-ching, let, let the slot machines ring. Well, the second pastor said, well, my secret sin is that I just, I just love to drink. When I go out of town, I, I find the nearest bar and I take a little nip of something. The third pastor just sat there in silence. Finally, after the encouragement of the others, said, oh, come on, come on. What, what, what's your hang-up? pastor says, well, my secret sin is gossiping, and I just can't wait to get out of this room. <laughs> Again, the book of Proverbs has so much to say on the subject of gossip. Proverbs sixteen twenty-seven through 28, an ungodly man digs up evil, and it's on his lips like a burning fire. A perverse man sows strife, and a whisperer separates the best of friends. A whisperer, gossiper. Proverbs twenty six twenty two: The words of a talebearer are like tasty trifles, and they go down into the inmost body. Proverbs twenty nineteen in the New Living Translation: A gossip goes around telling secrets, so don't hang around with chatterers. Now, gossip is so subtle. Because it can veil itself in, in, quote, acceptable ways. People say, well, have you heard? Or did you know? Or uh, I, I don't believe it's true, but I did hear. Or, or one of my favorites. I wouldn't tell you this, but, but I, I know it won't go any further than just me and you. Keep this to yourself. Now, we as Christians, we like to wrap it in our Christianese, you know. I need to tell you about so-and-so because we need to pray for them. Right? If we make it a matter of prayer. I think another way we, we hurt others is through innuendos. Innuendo is a, is a cousin of gossip. When you, we, we don't exactly say it, but you kind of imply it. Well, you know so-and-so. He's in the eyes roll back and you know, kind of in, you make that innuendo. Another subtle uh, misuse of the tongue is flattery. We all know what flattery is. It's just a, a fancy lie. It's when you say something that is really not true to win a person's favor or their attention or their approval. Man, you look great today. You're the greatest. You're number one. You're such a wonderful person. And you don't mean it about them at all, but because they just won the lottery, you flatter them. I read a good definition contrasting gossip and flattery. It goes like this. Gossip is saying behind a person's back what you would never say to their face. Flattery is saying to a person's face what you would never say behind their back. So, gossip is when I talk about you behind your back, this person, this is the way they are. I heard this about them. But flattery is that I say that to you, you're the greatest, but behind your back I can't stand them. Before we leave the subject of gossip, we need to be reminded that the person who listens to gossip also has a responsibility. Gossip would die out if we all refused to entertain it in our, in our conversations. The Bible says so. Proverbs 26.20 20. 
where there's no wood, the fire goes out, and where there's no tailbearer, the strife ceases. I think one of the true tests of our spiritual maturity is what we say with our mouth. If you cannot control your tongue, then your faith is worthless. You cannot be kind to another person and claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ while at the same time speaking profanity and gossip. This brings us to our third and final point. The power of the tongue has the power to delight. Look at verse 9. With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceeds blessing and cursings. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Think about those that have dedicated their, their, their tongues, their words, to the devil, and those that have dedicated their, their speech to the Lord. Adolf Hitler, a classic example of one, what happens to one who dedicates their, their life and indeed their words to darkness and to evil. He had powerful and persuasive words that sent an entire nation down the road to hell. And, and the result was senseless slaughter of millions of Jews and committed Christians as well. Because they believed his rhetoric of a madman who dedicated his words to Satan. But then take a man like Billy Graham. He was just a simple farm boy from Charlotte, North Carolina. Not necessarily a great orator naturally, but a man who dedicated his words to the Lord. And as a result, countless millions of people have their names written in the book of life as a result. Who is your tongue dedicated to right now? James says, out of the same mouth proceeds blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. We all know how that works. We've all been there. Again, we all stumble. We get dressed in our clothes for church. We put on our Sunday smiles. We use our Sunday words. We sing praise and worship to the Lord. We say amen, glory to his name. And as soon as church is over, we make it to our cars and we start tearing someone down. I can't believe so-and-so. Do you see the way they looked at me? I can't believe. They didn't say hi. I said hi to them. They didn't say hi. Pastor forgot my name. Can you believe he forgot my name? James is saying to us, when we do that, when we curse people who are made in the image of our Heavenly Father, it's like we're cursing our Father Himself. When married couples, our children, our parents, our fellow church members attack one another with our words, that attack is against God. Because that person that is attacked has the stamp of God on their lives. And I don't know of any Christian that would say those things to God or about God. You know, who does God think He is? We wouldn't say that. None of us would. But when we curse, when we devalue His creation, in essence, we are doing exactly that. We're saying that God made a big mistake when He created that worthless person. That's what James is saying. And that's why he's being so expressive here. When he cries out, My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Don't let it even be named among you if you truly name the name of Christ. And then he gives an example in verse 11 and 12. Does the spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives, or a grapevine bear figs? Thus no spring yields both salt water and fresh. Imagine going up to a drinking fountain, and one minute you press the lever and you get this fresh, cool drinking, a drink of water. But the next time you, you press it, you get salt water. Nothing would be more incompatible than a water fountain that did this. But too many Christians are just like a fountain like that. Their tongues speak forth sweet and bitter words. I think of when Jesus was talking to the Pharisees and he nailed them uh, you know, really on the type of mouth that, that, that they had. He said to them in Matthew twelve thirty four. he says, You brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. James is saying... Be honest. 
Are you skilled with your religious vocabulary so that at church you appear holy and good, but at home you're rude in your family? You're critical to others? What about at work? Do we enjoy the gossipy tidbits that come our way at the office? Maybe even pass on a few ourselves? How about things that we laugh about? How do we respond to others? What about social media? Do we use it to tear people down or lift people up? Listen, the person who uses profanity or indulges in destructive criticism and gossips doesn't do so because someone forced them to do it or someone provoked them to do it. The reason they do it is because that's what's in their heart. That's what Jesus said. That's why we need to have a change of heart to look at people the way God looks at them. And then to pray, Psalm nineteen fourteen. let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. See, the good news is we can make a difference when we speak. We can learn to nourish and refresh others instead of tearing them down. Our tongues have the power to delight. Being a person, a mature Christian, growing in our faith practically, to be more like Jesus means using our tongues despite its perversity, and with the help of the Holy Spirit, to refresh others, to lift one another up rather than to tear them down. Proverbs ten eleven: the mouth of the righteous is a well of life. I like that. Let me say one of the greatest uses for our words and our tongues is to praise God with them. Paul tells us in Ephesians 5.19, we're to be speaking to one another in songs and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in our hearts to the Lord. James says, with our words, we bless God. Scripture is filled with numerous examples of the importance of giving verbal praise to God. David wrote it in Psalm 63, verse 3 and 4, because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise you, thus I will bless you while I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. The writer of Hebrews understood this in Hebrews 13, 15. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Greatest use of our words, greatest use of our lips is to praise God with them. So important. But you can only do that if you have the right heart. Again, Jesus said in Luke 6.45, A good man out of the good treasures of his heart brings forth good. An evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. And then he said again, For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. When your heart is filled with God's word, his praises will naturally fall from, flow from your, from your mouth. That's why Psalm 34 says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. It's good to praise the Lord. It's good to verbally honor God, lift his name on high to say out loud, Jesus, I love you. Jesus, bless your holy name. Jesus, you are so good. God, you're so good to me. Once we offer to God our tongues, it has awesome power for good. Let me give you a few examples of of the good our words can do when we use them to share God's word. First, our words can proclaim a life-changing message of salvation. Romans 10, 14, and 15 says, And how they, can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Second, our words have the power for sanctification as we share God's word. John seventeen seventeen, Jesus prayed, Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Thirdly, our words have the power for healing in a person's life. Paul in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 5-7 said this, For when we came into Macedonia, this body of ours 
had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside, fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. Now catch this. It says, He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. Out of the words of Titus, he brought healing, he brought comfort to Paul. Fourthly, our words have the power for worship. Hebrews thirteen fifteen. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name. Finally, one more point about our words that we use. The apostle gives us this warning in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29 and 30. He tells us, let no corrupt communication proceed from your mouth, but that which is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Now, some of you may know, you may have experienced this, um, my cell phone has got a glitch. When I hang up from talking to someone, immediately it calls someone else on my contact list. Not even the last person I talked to. I don't know what's going on with it. I updated it last night, so it won't happen anymore. But the problem is, I don't realize it happens because I hang up and I stick the phone in my pocket until I hear, Dad, Dad, or Tom, or Pastor, you know. Now, if it's someone you're not close to, there is that fear. <laughs> what did I say? I don't know if someone else was listening. Did I gossip? Did I talk about them? Did I make a joke that I would not want that person on the other end to know about? After all, I am a pastor. You know, that's how it is with the Holy Spirit all the time. It's like your cell phone has butt-dialed God and you didn't even know it. <laughs> Think about that. I, I mean, would you live your life differently if every conversation and every thought you ever had was being accidentally broadcasted across the cell phone in your pocket to your pastor. Well, it's not, nor do I want, want it to happen. I don't want to hear it. But, but God does hear every thought, every word we say. That's why Paul warns us there in Ephesians to watch how we use our tongues, lest we grieve the Holy Spirit. This is significant because when our words are profane, when our words are inappropriate or hurting, we sadden the Holy Spirit who lives within us. It's important because it's the Holy Spirit that gives us the power to live the Christian life. When you grieve the Holy Spirit, you render His power ineffective in your life. You know, it's like when you allow that the corrosion to form on, on the battery post of the, the terminals of your car battery. That corrosion can, can interrupt the charge from the battery and prevent your car from powering up. Many believers have too much corrosion around their mouths. The result is there's no, there's no power from the Holy Spirit uh, that can flow through the engine of, of, of your life. If you want power in your life, you must remove that corrosion from your mouth. And when we do that, the Holy Spirit's charge will be restored. And you'll have power to live a victorious Christian life. You know, some of us need to go to God this morning and confess the profanity, the criticism, the gossip, the judgmental words that corrode our mouths. Some people talk about others all day long and dismantle them with their words and then wonder why there's no power in their lives. And the reason is we've grieved the Holy Spirit. We've lost that power connection. Maybe you're in the middle of a, an argument right now with someone all because something you said or something they said or the words you used to respond to something that they said. No, you're grieving the Holy Spirit. 
Maybe you've been saying something about someone that is simply not true. You're grieving the Holy Spirit. Maybe you've been putting someone down, slandering them. Maybe you've been cutting someone, you know, you don't even know if your information is true or not. But you keep putting them down. You've been spreading it like, like, like it's a gospel truth. You're grieving the Holy Spirit. Or maybe you've just not used your words, your lips, your tongue to honor and praise God as you ought to. You're grieving the Holy Spirit. So what do we do? Listen, God can cleanse us and will forgive us for the improper use of our tongue. But we've got to be serious about it. Because God takes us very seriously. So the first thing that we must do is ask God to cauterize our lips. Confess to Him that we have a problem with our tongue. Isaiah did it. I brought it out in the beginning of the study. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5 and 6, when he says, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Oh, Lord, cauterize my mouth. Confess to him we have a problem with our tongue. Receive that forgiveness as Isaiah did. Secondly, there must be an ongoing prayerfulness in regarding to what we say. To consistently pray, Psalm 141.3, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Confession, praying, that go together hand in hand. And finally, and thirdly, we must personally resolve to discipline the use of our tongue. To not criticize, to not give in to, to receive gossip, to not put someone down, or to demeanor them, or to falsely accuse them, or to flatter them, but to use our words for good, to praise God and our Savior Jesus Christ, to encourage one another and lift others up and not put them down. I want to close with this. It's a quote from Ken Q's book it's called Faith That Works. And he describes this chapter so perfectly well. Listen to this. He writes, There are a few sections of Scripture which are so graphically relentless in making a point. In addition, this is the most penetrating and convicting exposition of the tongue anywhere in literature, sacred or secular. So we must also conclude that it was not just James's local concern for his churches which prompted the writing, but also the Holy Spirit's desire that the church at large learn to control the tongue. Then he closes with this tongue, made this poem rather. May the mind of Christ my Savior live in me from day to day by his love and power controlling all I do and say. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time this morning. We thank you for your word. Lord, because we know your word has the power to change our lives for the good. And Lord, we pray that our words that come out of our mouth would do the same, Lord, that we would be those that would uplift and we would uh, encourage and we would uh, see people come to know you through the words that we share, through the lives that we lead. Father, we know that your word says if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that you, God has raised him from the dead, that we will be saved. So Lord, I pray right now if there's anyone here this morning that has yet to surrender their heart and life to you, they're not born again this morning, I pray, Lord, that they would use their words that they would make that commitment to you. Your word says, for with the heart one believes unto salvation, or unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Lord, I pray, if there's anyone here, that they would put their faith and trust in you this morning. Father, for us as believers, Lord, control our tongue. Take control of it, Lord. Holy Spirit, convict us. 
Help us to, to hear that conviction when we say things we know we shouldn't, Lord, to seek that forgiveness and always look at ways to encourage one another, lift one another up, and sing praises to your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I'll stand and we'll do one last song together.